All right, so we're going to start this Advent series by showing you a six-minute video. Uh, and I need to kind of preface this video and just let you know that um, this video is very basic. It's, gonna, it's designed really to just kind of get a discussion started. Um, it, 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 those of you that really know your theology, don't, don't be tempted to try to pick out theological nuances that you want to nitpick at. I understand that we could do that all day long. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to introduce this idea of heaven and earth and the coming kingdom and, and uh, this Advent series. And so it's a very basic way of, of starting to reframe the way we think about uh, Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so uh, just spend six minutes watching this video and, and indulging in that. Oh, there are so many things I'd like to say right now that aren't in my notes, but... Um, Anyway, the two guys that put together these videos, this Bible project, are from Portland, Oregon, so that might explain a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and just to make sure that you understand, um, Adam thought that he was at the U of A ASU game cheering for U of A and saying we're number one. So uh, that'll explain a lot of that. Okay, so here we go. I want you to have that video to help you frame what we're going to talk about today and what we're going to talk about for the next uh, four weeks, which uh, is interesting because at the very end of this series, in four weeks, just like at the end of this video, we're going to be talking about Revelation 21 and 22, uh, the New Jerusalem. So we're going to be uh, working our way through this uh, journey. The name of the series is The King is Coming, and today's message is The Kingdom is Near, and we are starting this series on Advent. It's it's Advent season. So what exactly is Advent? I know that many of you know what Advent is. You grew up with the Word. You know the tradition. You grew up in church, and, and so you're used to it. However, I'm just going to confess to you that I tend to be a lot, I tend to be very sensitive towards those people like myself who did not grow up in church, who have no understanding of the church traditions, who don't understand a lot of the churchy insider language that churches like to use, such as the word Advent. And so I tend to be sensitive towards that, and so I want to take some time to explain what that is about, because I just figured that the minute Thanksgiving was over until Christmas season, it was all about chocolates and parties and going to Nordstrom's, and that was essentially it. And it's really way more than that. So let me take a minute to explain what we're going to do the next four weeks. Uh, you might know it as the Christmas season. Christmas is the celebration of the, verse, uh, of the birth of the Savior. But what needs to be remembered is that Jesus was born to die. That is the one thing that we seem to forget during the, the, the Christmas season, during the Advent season, more than anything else. If He doesn't die, He is not our Savior. Uh, too often, what we want to do during Christmas is we want to leave Jesus as a baby in the manger, meek and mild. He's not dangerous there. He doesn't have anything to say about uh, our lives. He's not Lord and King there. Uh, we need to realize that, as, uh, that, that yes, He is our Savior, but He came to die. And not only that, but His death led to His resurrection. And His resurrection leads to the fact that He's eventually going to come again. And it leads to the fact that He's going to be ushering in the renewed creation, the, the, the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem. Uh, in a sense, you could say, heaven and earth overlapping again. Let me say a, a, a something about the video. Even the video mentions this. Uh, the problem, the challenge, the challenge with things like this and language like this is that it just 
it rarely does justice to exactly what's going to happen. We can kind of talk about it and we can use symbolism, but we can never really truly and completely get at it. The best we can do is kind of like a movie trailer or a movie preview. We have some idea, we might get a little glimpse, we might get a little taste, but all of the videos and all of the language that we could possibly put together at this time is never going to be a complete enough picture. And that's what we have to just kind of wait and hope for. But that's what we are waiting and hoping for. Jesus came once and he's coming again. The word advent literally means arrival or a coming And if you want to take the word advent, which is a noun, and turn it into a verb, which is something that I enjoy doing, even though you're not supposed to do that grammatically, um, you, you could say it this way. Jesus advented once, and those who are Christians are hoping and praying and waiting expectantly for him to advent again. And what we need to remember is that this This idea that the Christmas season, the the time between Thanksgiving, including Black Friday, and all the way till Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, while in, in, in recent decades has been all about parties and the birth of baby Jesus and Christmas trees and, and, and all of those things, historically and traditionally for a couple of thousand years, the church wasn't necessarily looking back at Jesus' birth during this season. That's not primarily what they were doing. Of course, they acknowledged his birth, but primarily what they were doing was actually looking ahead to his second coming, and they were more concerned with talking about how to prepare and wait for his second coming. And so Advent is not just the celebration of of Jesus being born as the incarnation of God, but it is more about the celebration and hope that we have that He is coming again. If you listen closely to the songs that that we sang already and the songs that we'll sing during this season, it will be focusing a lot on the fact that He's coming again. And that arrival, that second arrival, is to make all things new and to consummate or to complete the kingdom of God. In other words, his second coming will be nothing like the first coming. And, and we see that in the Bible, specifically in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, I, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Those of you that believe in reincarnation, if you believe in the Bible, there you go. That, that you only go around once in life, you, that's it. Right there. There is no reincarnation, Okay? So Hebrews says, just as as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. If you want to have a big idea for this entire series, for this four weeks, there it is. It's Hebrews chapter 9. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about the kingdom of God and His second coming. This series is going to be very theological, but it's also going to be really practical. And don't worry. For those of you, well, what about celebrating His birth? We're going to do that. Don't worry. We're, yay, Jesus being born. We're all for that. And we're going to do that Christmas Eve at 4.30 and 6, by the way. There's my fourth announcement of the day. Christmas Eve, 4.30 and 6. We are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But His birth means nothing 
without his death, his resurrection, and the kingdom of God. And so what we really want to communicate in these next four weeks is this. Jesus is our Savior. Yes. Yes, our sin has separated us from God. And we need rescue for that. We need a deliverer. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. And Jesus is the one who does that for us. But, the, but one of the challenges we have in the church is that it seems as though that, that Savior thing, is the vast majority, if not all, of the press that Jesus gets both inside and out of the church that He saves. And there's a sense in which that's too bad because it's not a complete picture of who Jesus really is. It's a good picture of who Jesus is. I'm not disputing that that's a good picture of Jesus, but it's not a complete picture. It's not the full picture of who He is. It seems as though we don't do enough to emphasize the Lordship of Jesus in our lives and forever. That He is a King. That He has majesty and sovereignty. We grab that Savior thing and then we forget about the rest of this. He's Lord of all. He's Creator of all. And He's sovereign over all. And therefore, He is the King of the Kingdom of God. And remember, He designed the Kingdom of God. He started the Kingdom of God. He established the Kingdom of God. He reigns over the Kingdom of God. And He will complete the Kingdom of God. And therefore, you and I don't just accept our salvation and go on our merry way and never give another thought to this but we also instead, we submit to Him as King and Lord of our lives. We live in His constant presence, strengthened by His power, receiving His love and loving Him back. And so what we're going to do today for the rest of this message, there's, there's just going to be a lot of setup and intro today. A lot of setup and intro so that we can have a better and fuller understanding of, of the rest of, uh, of this series. But there is a big idea for today, and the big idea is the title of today's message. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. So let's go to the beginning of the Jesus narrative. You don't have to turn there with me. Just All I want you to do is camp out on Matthew 25. I'll go to all these other places that we're going to go. We're going to go to three or four different places in Scripture, but Matthew 25 will be our primary text eventually when I get there, okay? But I want to go to the beginning of the Jesus narrative to help start this, to get us, to get us started. So understand the beginning of the Jesus ministry narrative, Jesus is 30 years old. And he's been in the family business with his father Joseph. He's been a carpenter. And now comes time for his public ministry, which only lasts three years. And so what happens is John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin and Jesus' herald. Now, that's not John's nickname, herald. A herald is one who would announce the presence or the coming of somebody else. And a herald would do that in, in, in a variety of ways. Primarily, he would do it verbally. He would say, hey, everybody, look who's coming. That's the job of a herald. And sometimes they would have a horn or some sort of an instrument. Okay, or maybe it's both. Look, he's here. Okay, so whatever it is, John is his herald. He is announcing the coming of Jesus. And so he prepares the way so that Jesus can get started. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus is baptized. By the way... 
Another little plug here, my fifth announcement this morning. All of these texts are important. They're all very important. I don't mean to skip over them. And you should know that on February 8th, we're going to actually go through these texts because we're going to start a brand new series on February 8th going through the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to get plenty of this stuff. All right. Anyway, so he comes, he's been baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he prays and fasts. And then at the end of that 40 days, he has that whole temptation thing with Satan. And upon emerging from that, he's ready to go. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, this is what uh, happens. Now, after John was arrested, and if you're wondering, John the Baptist got arrested? Yes, he did. Come back in February and you can hear all about that, okay? Well, maybe March by the time we get there. Anyway, now John, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying... Now Jesus, this is the first thing that Jesus says in his ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is really critical to understand. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is marked by his clear proclamation of two things that he is all about and therefore that the church, you and I, should be all about. This is, this is Jesus at his best doing his public speaking thing where he wants everybody to understand what he is all about. And it's two things. Number one, it's the gospel. It's the good news. Uh, the good news follows the bad news, as David talked about last week. He says you can't have good news without bad news. The bad news is that we are born into sin, and as a result, we are separated from God. And there's nothing that you and I can do in and of ourselves to rectify that chasm between us and God. And so out of His love and mercy and grace, God has sent His Savior, His Deliverer, His Rescuer, in the Messiah, in Jesus, the incarnate God, in order to rescue us. That is the good news. But it's again, like I said, it's not just for saving. The gospel is also good news for how we live. We live our lives all for Jesus. The gospel permeates everything that we do. It's not just that we get saved by the gospel and we're on our merry way, but we live by the gospel. So the first thing that he's all about is the gospel. And then the second thing is the kingdom. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what's, what's the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is a community of those who are living their identity in Christ by the power of the gospel under the teaching of Jesus. Graham Goldsworthy has a simple and helpful definition of the kingdom of God. Here it is. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, I like what Philip Ryken uh, said about uh, Mark Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the verses I just read, he he writes this. People say you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Jesus had been waiting for this moment all his life. He spent 30 years preparing for his opening line. And what is it? The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so one of the things that we must get out of this, this is critical to understand, is that the gospel and the kingdom of God go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And there's one other thing I want to say about this this opening passage. Some of you might be asking right now, and it's a great question. It's one that we should wrestle with. What's the difference between the kingdom that Jesus announces in this passage and the one that he will come to reign over at his second coming. It it seems as though there's a difference between the two. 
Well, the difference is that when he came originally, he inaugurated the kingdom, but he did not consummate or complete the kingdom. In other words, it's that whole idea that we talk about every now and then. It's the already but not yet. That already but not yet tension that we live in. We know that we have victory in Jesus and by Jesus, but we still have work to do. A couple illustrations that have helped me in the past. Maybe they'll help you. Uh, in June of 1944, there was a very important uh, event that happened. It's, it's known as D-Day. It's the day that the United States landed at Normandy on Omaha Beach. Okay? Now, some of you have seen the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, right? So you know what I'm talking about here. Now, historians will say that's the day that World War II was won in the European theater by the United States. That's the day that victory was, was, was achieved. But if you were to go to any of those guys that, was, that, that, were, that were on the beach during that invasion, right? And there's bullets flying by them and there's bombs going off next to them and their comrades are being killed and they're being injured and you said, hey, aren't you excited? We've won the war. They'd say, the, uh, no, we haven't. The war is still going on. So you get that tension. We achieved our victory that day, but there was still work to do. Here's how uh, Michael Goheen likes to describe it. Uh, he, he says the, the kingdom has come truly, but it has not come fully. And he describes it this way. He says he comes home, and his wife's already at home, and she's decided to make some dinner, and she's a good cook apparently, and she's cooking something up, and it smells good. And, and, and he walks over, and, and she says, here, have a taste. And so he gets a couple of bites of what they're going to have for dinner. Has he had the full meal yet? No. But he's had a taste of what is coming. And, and so he, he has had truly a taste of the meal, but he has not fully had the meal yet. And so that's what we're experiencing with this kingdom of God. There's a sense in which the kingdom has already come. It came when Jesus came. But there is yet another sense in which the kingdom is still to come. And please understand, you and I are not building the kingdom. Only Jesus can do that. But we are used by Jesus in the process of building the kingdom to plant seeds, to proclaim the gospel, to minister to people, to, to equip the saints for ministry, to teach his word. We are working in the kingdom, but he is the one who establishes the results and ultimately builds the kingdom. And the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. And so then that moves us to talking about, well, when is that going to be? You, you knew we had to eventually get to this, right? When is that going to be? What do we do while we wait? And what does it all mean to us? And so it's true. For those of you that have been kind of thinking about this, yeah, we're going to deal with some eschatology during uh, this. So well, what's eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end times. So like I said, uh, on the last Sunday, December 21st, we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 11. And I will tell you right out of the gate, there are lots of challenges to doing this. Lots of challenges to doing this. And again, a quote from Phil Riken in his excellent book, Kingdom Come. There's a quote that he has that is perfect at efficiently explaining what some of these challenges are. Let me read it to you. There is something about the return of Jesus that tends to bring out the crazy in people's theology. Somebody always wants to play pin the tail on the Antichrist or to hotwire biblical prophecies to global politics or to predict the exact date when the world will end. 
You ever run into anybody who knows the exact date when the world will end? Do you remember those billboards during the spring of 2011? Anybody remember those billboards? I liked, I love to talk about those billboards. That was Harold Camping's organization, which, by the way, May 21st, 2011, which was a Saturday, um, was uh, the fifth time that he had predicted that the world was going to end and that Jesus was going to come. The fifth time! And yet people still believed him. And what, it hap- what happened on May 22nd? Besides the fact that some other organization put up billboards all over America, that very, actually at midnight that night, that said, well, that was awkward. <laughs> and then underneath, Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour. What did, what did Harold Camping do in the wake of that? Oh, I miscalculated. He's coming in October of 2011. Okay, so if he came in October of 2011, we might be in some trouble here. All right, so there's, there's just one, okay? I, I love talking about the Millerites from the mid-1800s. Now, some of you are like the Millerites. What are they, like a, a Methodist group that likes to drink beer? No, although they exist, okay? No, no, no. The Millerites uh, were led by a guy named William Miller who also was predicting when Jesus would come. Now, check this out. You, 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 this is amazing to me. This is like a couple of years before social media, right? 1844, okay? So social media hadn't been invented. No Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, none of this stuff. William Miller got 100,000 people to come out on a hillside in New York waiting for Jesus to come. And not only that, but they sold everything they owned to come out and be with him. 100,000 people. Those of you that think that you're really good at organizing stuff on Facebook, <laughs> you, don't, you don't know anything, man. You should study William Miller. He knows how to organize people. By the way, he said the same thing when Jesus didn't show up. I miscalculated it's coming in another six months. Guess what? 50,000 people showed up for that one. Some of you are old enough like me to remember the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Anybody remember that book? Anybody own that book? Sold five million copies. That's embarrassing. That is embarrassing. We have these people doing this all the time, over and over. By the way, one person writes this regarding Harold Camping. The problem with saying Jesus will come next October is not necessarily that he probably won't come then, but that he could come even sooner. Why doesn't anybody think about that? He could come right now. Some of you are praying that that would happen. Yes, please, Lord, God, help us. The kingdom is near. The question is, are we ready and how well are we waiting? And many people think that waiting means that we are to look at world events and interpret them through some sort of grid or formula and come up with a date. But Jesus said very, very clearly, no one knows the day or the hour. No one. Are there any exceptions to that? No one. There's no exception to that. And not only that, but in Luke chapter 17, he also plainly tells us that you and I will not be able to figure out what the date is based on all of these events that he talks about, the, 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 the earthquakes and, and all of that stuff. And I just ask myself, why don't we listen to Jesus more? And two things about this. Let me just mention two things about this. When Jesus talks about the earthquakes and all of that stuff that the end times are going to be marked by, understand, he's not giving those to us as tools to help us figure out the date. There is no toolkit in the Bible. Well, how do you know that, Frank? Because 
because he wouldn't tell us that no one knows the day or the hour and then provide us with tools and some mysterious formula. Guys, this is not the blacklist. And, and it's not James Spader running around going, the FBI and the CIA don't know anything, but I know everything. That's not what's happening. He has not provided us with tools to figure this out. No one knows. He's just saying this is what's going to be happening during the end times, during the last days. And that leads to number two. Matthew 24, 36. No one knows the day or the hour. That verse is not given to us to tie us up and, and to be a part of the ministry, but he, uh, the, the, part of the mystery, but he gives us that verse to free us up. He gives us that verse to free us up. I've run into people who, who look at Matthew 24, 36, and they have something fairly negative to say about Jesus there. Oh, he's just toying with us. Why is he so sarcastic? Why does he have to do that to us? He's not toying with you. That verse is a gift. It frees you and I to be up, to not be consumed with when. And this allows you and I to live with less anxiety in the near and coming kingdom, not more anxiety. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that while we are waiting for this day, we are to be at peace. One of the marks of, a, of somebody who's in Christ is somebody who is at peace with the fact that he's going to come again. Those who are anxiously trying to figure out when it is or tirelessly working everyone with world events and plotting to overthrow the most recent fashionable antichrist those are people who are not at peace. And it's a basically joyless life. And they, they, they think that somehow God is deficient and, and they're missing the gospel. And frankly, this anxiety is driven by an underappreciation that the kingdom has already come. It's come when Jesus came the first time. And so it's true. We live in this tension between inauguration, Mark chapter 1, and consummation, Revelation 21 and 22. And Paul acknowledges that tension in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, this is hard to live in this world. There's people that, 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 are, that are very depraved and very dark and very wicked. And then he says in 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of what we hope to accomplish in this short series is to reframe, reframe how we think in regard to his second coming, to reframe it into more of a biblical perspective. So I want to look at a couple more things to get us started. By the way, I've mentioned this already once or twice. Uh, Phil Riken, who I, I believe is the president of Wheaton University, has written a book called Kingdom Come. It's a very short, very accessible book, but it is deeply profound, and I would highly recommend uh, that if you want to read something to kind of augment this series, that would be a very, very helpful book. Phil Reich and uh, Kingdom Come. So here we go now, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to reread um, this, this whole story about the, about the ten virgins and the, and the, and the uh, bridegroom, and then we'll unpack it and we'll see what it means. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here comes the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And all those virgins rose up and trimmed their lamps. 
And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And I know that for some people, they they say that seems kind of confusing and convoluted, but it really isn't. Here's the context of this story. Normally, the bridegroom with his close friends would leave his home and go to the bride's for the wedding, the actual wedding ceremony, the, the marriage ceremony. And they would do that over there. And then after that was done, there would be a procession into the streets at night led by the bridegroom and his bride and they would head back over to his house. And that was like a, a, a party or a parade. And the ten virgins were, in a sense, they were bridesmaids who had been helping the bride getting ready uh, for her big day. They had been assisting her. They had not been at the ceremony, but they were waiting to assist and, and join the procession as they go to the bridegroom's house where uh, festivities, the reception. How many of you, are married and had a reception that lasted a week long. Okay, they knew how to have marriages, let me tell you something. That they would, th- th- these receptions would last maybe even a week long. And they would go over to the groom's house in order to do that. And people would join them. And everyone in the procession was expected to carry their own torch or lamp. You had to have a torch or a lamp to be able to get into this procession. And those without a torch or a lamp would be assumed, it would be assumed that they were party crashers or even brigands or troublemakers. Okay? And then, like I said, the festivities, which would last for several days, would then get underway at the groom's house late at night. But here's the problem with this. There's no guarantee as to when the bridegroom and his wedding party is going to show up. There's like no schedule of this. You just had to wait. And you never knew how long things were going to take at the bride's house. And notice, this bridegroom was delayed. And we see varying reactions from the five virgins who were prepared, who had the oil, and the five who did not. The five who did not have the oil, they were anxious and they were without peace and they were left out and they were angry and upset. But the five who get it are at peace and they're calm and they're hopeful and they're ready. And the meaning of the parable is very simple. Jesus says it in verse 13. Jesus will return at an unknown hour so His people, rather than being anxious, should be ready. And so the next question you should ask is, well then what does it mean to be ready? All through the New Testament there are three things that get us ready. They're very basic things. And all of us need to do this. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And let me just take a minute to explain what I mean by each of those. Number one, repent. Have you responded to the call of the gospel in your life? People have told you, and if if they haven't, I'll be surprised, but people have told you that Jesus is your Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the answer to your sin. Have you responded to that? And if nobody has told you that before this very moment, you're hearing it now. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. All this sin, all this wickedness, all this darkness, He is the answer. He is the Messiah. Have you responded to the Gospel call, to the good news call? Are you born again? John says that in John chapter 3. Have you been born again? 
You, you were born once into sin. Have you been born once by the Holy? Uh, by, have you been born again by the Holy Spirit of God into the kingdom of God, into this gospel, into this saving grace? Have you turned away from all of the false gods of this world to be with the real God, and that would be Jesus? Have you repented? Second of all, have you believed? Are are you living a gospel-centered life that claims distinctiveness in Jesus, trusting in His power and His promises in your life? And finally, have you been baptized? And some of you are like, does that mean I've been dunked in, in water? Yes, but that's not all of what it means to be baptized. Are you, here you go, are you willing to be identified with Jesus in every situation, in every context that you're in? Are you claiming, are you willing to stand and say, I am with Christ and he is with me? Are you, and are you prepared? Here you go. This, this has to do exactly with this parable that we just read. Are you also prepared to not look back or, or, or not feel like you need to go back to your old unredeemed self? Is there a love for this world and the things of this world that is greater than a love for Christ that will cause you to stay with the world rather than being with Jesus? John, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, says it like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, that's all the false gods in this world. And remember, false gods never fail to fail. If you're expecting to find your fulfillment in these things, the the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, understand you're not going to be fulfilled. Because this is not from the Father, but, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, have you put off doing what you're called to do in Jesus to the extent that when He comes, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, i got to go and do this first. That's what happened in this parable with these ten virgins. And so, repent, believe, and be baptized. Be willing to be identified with Him all the time, not going back. And so I think that brings up three questions that we'll wrap up with. Three quick questions. Here's the first question. Regarding the second coming, what are we not looking for? Let me take you to another passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Should be on the screens. If it's not, just listen to me read it. This is Paul talking about that day. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You have no need to have anything written to you about these times. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, you don't know when it's coming. That's code language for you don't know. So you don't have to figure it out. Put away the calculator. While people are saying there is peace and security, while people are professing and proclaiming false gods, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The one thing that we should not do 
is look for people who are going to tell us when this is going to happen. We, we don't need to do that. We already live in the security of being saved. And by the way, Riken writes this in his book. I'm giving you a lot of Riken quotes. Maybe you don't need to buy the book. You can just listen to my quotes. But he writes this. When Jesus comes again, it will happen so unexpectedly that it will be a total surprise. At the same time, it will be so obvious that no one will miss it. So, what are we not looking for? We're not looking for people who are going to tell us when it's going to be. Second question, what do we do while we wait? Boy, we could have a whole series on this question here. Let, let me just hit it from this angle. Have you ever heard the old saying? This is a saying that a lot of coaches use, okay? So some of you athletes maybe have heard this saying, you play like you practice. You ever heard that saying? Coach is very upset with how practice is going. You're not giving 100% effort. And then he, he or she starts yelling, you play like you practice. If you don't start practicing hard, you're not going to play hard and you're not going to play well. Well, that's what it means to be ready. And the obvious and clear message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we are to practice patience and waiting and trust for His advent, for His first coming and for His second coming. So for us, it would be for His second coming. Patience and waiting. How many of you would claim you're really good at patience and waiting? That's my ministry. That's my giftedness. Patience and waiting. I am the King, Lord of patience and waiting. Not, I, don't, I have no takers right now. You see, here's the problem with patience. It's not passive. We can pray for patience. Sir, we can read about patience. We can think about patience and we can say, God, give me patience. That would be great. By the way, how many of you prayed that prayer? God, give me patience. And then what happens? Yeah, it's really lovely. Okay? See, here's the thing. Scripture says that patience is actively acquired, actively acquired by going through things with faith that require you to be what? Patient. That's how you acquire patience. And patience almost always involves waiting. The sanctified person, the one who is growing in Christ, is one who is patient or is who is learning patience. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith is going to produce, the Greek word is hupomene, which means a variety of things. It means patience, it means perseverance, it means endurance, and it means steadfastness. How many of you want to have those four words describe you? Well, you're going to have to be, patient, be, be, be ready for stuff to come so that you can practice patience. In fact, here you go. Those of you who are looking for a formula, I got a formula for you. Here you go. Grace plus patience plus waiting equals sanctification. Grace plus patience plus waiting equals sanctification. And remember, I want to say this again. I think Peter is spot on on this in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, while you're waiting, you need to be at peace. Peace and patience are comrades. Peace and patience are comrades. Last question. How do you save your life? You go back to this parable of the ten virgins. You need, you need to know Jesus and you need to respond to the gospel. You need to place your faith and trust in him alone. The five bridesmaids who got it, they had repented. They had turned from what they wanted to do, which was maybe be lazy or, or, or trust in somebody else taking care of their lamps for them, and, and they prepared and they were ready. And, and, and they believed. They knew that he was coming eventually, and they needed to be ready, and then they were willing to identify themselves with the groom. And that's what you and I need to do. That's what it takes. Repent, believe, be baptized. 
Let me pray. Josh will come up and lead us in our time of response. God, uh, we do thank You that You have come once and that You're coming again. And so now I pray that during these next four weeks, we would learn what that means, that You are King and that the Kingdom is coming. And so God, help us to understand that. We love You. We're desperately in need of You. Help us to remember that and confess that all the time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.